Now I'd like to introduce tonight's moderator, Michael Wu. Michael Wu is the Dean of the College of Environmental Design at Cal Poly Pomona. He was the first trained urban planner and the first Asian American elected to the Los Angeles City Council, where he represented Hollywood and the surrounding neighborhoods for eight years. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Michael Wu. Thank you. Thank you. On behalf of the panel, I'd like to thank the board and the staff of Zocalo for giving us this opportunity for a public conversation on how to integrate the city through future, its future growth and development. About 20 years ago, I had the privilege of being invited to go on a study tour of France and being offered all expenses paid, I'd be given a translator and a guide, and all I had to do was to say, give them one subject I was interested in. The one subject I told them I was interested in was, I'd like to know how in France, the leaders could propose major projects that would change the shape of the city and actually finish those projects on time, on budget, and without the voters or the public objecting to thinking big. And as someone coming from Los Angeles, it made me wonder uh, several, about several things. One was, is it possible to think big in Los Angeles or in another American city? Is it possible for a public official to, sur to survive being tagged as a visionary? Is there a way through our public and private processes that we could think about how a city like Los Angeles can grow and change in a way that facilitates the integration of the social and physical aspects of the city? These are some of the subjects we're going to talk about tonight. Not about Paris, but about Los Angeles. We might talk about Paris, but, uh, but mostly about Los Angeles and about how the city is going to change. And in particular, we're going, we're going to focus on a particular parcel of 125 acres near the Los Angeles River, near downtown LA, uh, known as the Piggyback Yard. Uh, this is the last large parcel of land near downtown Los Angeles under a single ownership. And it creates some real opportunities, as you'll hear during the discussion, which will start in just a few minutes. Uh, I, I'd like to introduce a couple of themes, though, because while we do want to talk about this specific project, we also want to extrapolate, not just to talk about this project, but what does it mean for other parts of Los Angeles? What does it mean about the process by which we make decisions about planning ahead for the future of our city? So while I hope that you'll learn a lot about the Piggy Backyard, I hope you'll also think about what are the lessons to be learned about how other parts of Los Angeles will change change as well. And, and I think it also raises some interesting questions about how we relate public and private uses in the city. As a native of Los Angeles, I've sometimes thought that LA has a kind of backyard culture, a culture that focuses on private uses, uh, as opposed to other cities, which at least according to the stereotype, have more of a front porch culture that relates to other people, that relates more to public or shared uses. And if you accept this distinction between a backyard culture and a front porch culture, is Los Angeles changing in a way that makes uh, a front porch culture more possible? Are we, are, is our city changing in ways that enables us to live some kind of shared life, some kind of common life, some kind of public life more easily than in the years of the past? 
And also, I think this subject is gonna raise some questions about change itself. Uh, while in some ways Los Angeles has a reputation for being a city of optimists, a city built by dreamers, I think we can also think of some instances in which this city also symbolizes stubborn resistance to change or even fear of change. And, and so I think some of the issues raised by this proposed project is not just about how to use 125 acres of land, it also raises questions about how a city changes and how the people who live in the city can affect how that city is gonna change. One last word before I start to introduce the panelists. We are not gonna have a PowerPoint presentation tonight. This is the only large group of more than four people in Los Angeles where there will be no PowerPoint presentation, no slides showing visual images of the project we're talking about or the nearby uses. This will put a special burden on the panelists to use words and not images to try to make their point. Uh, and, and also, in recognizing the entire audience does not sit in this room, there's also a large audience listening via podcast. We're going to do our best to use, use words to convey what this is all about. So this shouldn't be that hard. I mean, after all, Jonathan Gold does not deliver aromas or images of food, and yet he's still able to make you hungry, right? Uh, so in the same way, these architecture and landscape architecture and design equivalents of Jonathan Gold will use words tonight as opposed to the images we usually rely upon to try to convey the ideas that will be in this public conversation. Uh, so let's begin this public conversation. We'll begin with Mark Salette. Mark Salette founded Chi Salette's architecture office in 2009 with the architect Tina Chi. Prior to founding CSAO, Mr. Salette worked at Geary Partners for 20 years and was a partner for the last six years. He was in charge of projects including the Guggenheim Museum Abu Dhabi, the World Trade Center Performing Arts Center in New York City, the Brooklyn Atlantic Yards Master Plan, and the Fred and Ginger Office Project in Prague. He was also part of the team that designed the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao. And now Mark Salette will give us an overview about the piggyback yard and try to explain how did this team come together and what's the significance of it for Los Angeles. Mark? Thank you, Michael. Uh, if words don't prove not to be enough to describe the project, I invite you to visit our website at piggybackyard.org. And for the people listening at home, uh, you may have this advantage of following on your screen what we're saying. As uh, Michael said, the Piggy Backyard is a huge site located right on the LA River, uh, pretty much across from where we are now, uh, between downtown and the communities of Lincoln Heights and Boyle Heights. It is bordered on the south by Mission Road uh, and the five freeway to the east, and it's uh, adjacent to the USC Medical Center to the east, and the Brewery Arts Colony to the north. And Union Station is just about a 10-minute walk away to the west. The site is currently mainly used for the transfer of freight from train to trucks. And to most people, it's, uh, it's just a short glimpse uh, seen from the 5 Freeway. Uh, to Lewis McAdams and the Friends of the Los Angeles River, it is much more than that. It's the most significant opportunity to provide public access to the Los Angeles River through downtown. Uh, the operations of the site have been scaled down in recent years, 
and they and many others see the possibility of relocating them or condensing them in the future. So at Lewis's request, uh, our design collaborative uh, made of uh, architects and landscape architects was formed to work pro bono on a vision for the future of the piggy backyard and to make, in his words, the invisible visible. Because of the, the size of the site and its location, it's not only a unique opportunity to transform the Los Angeles River, uh, it's also an opportunity to change the city around it and for the betterment of community and ecology. Our original area of study, which was the yard itself, uh, was expanded uh, to the south to include uh, the south side of Mission Road and uh, also to consider the potential redevelopment of the other side of the river associated with the arrival of uh, high-speed rail at Union Station. So we met with numerous uh, interested groups over many months, including the Los Angeles River Revitalization Corporation, uh, various city agencies, uh, the Army Corps of Engineers, and representatives from the neighboring communities. The master plan, as we presented it, has received near unanimous support from all who've been involved in that process to date. And we're thrilled to uh, uh, present some aspects of it to you tonight. Our vision for this Piggy Backyard Master Plan is founded on four integrated principles. Uh, revitalize the Los Angeles River at the heart of the city, create significant public open space, connect to adjacent neighborhoods, and bridge between east and west, and build a diverse community when people, where people can, can come to live, work, learn, and play. Our master plan uh, proposes to restore the Los Angeles River to a natural habitat at the Piggy Backyard by replacing the concrete channel that's existing with a wider, much wider, soft bottom riverbed, slowing down the flow of water, allowing plants to grow, attracting wildlife, and creating the uh, opportunity for natural water infiltration and cleansing. Most importantly, our concept enables people to access the river safely over a mile of riverfront and to engage its unique environment. Our plan proposes to make a significant portion of the site available for floodwater detention, uh, the second largest detention area on the river after the Sepulveda Basin, to protect the communities downstream from an increasing flood risk. And as an extension of this natural habitat, we're proposing to create an extraordinary 130-acre park, which would be the largest and most diverse of its kind in Los Angeles, combining active areas such as soccer fields, playgrounds, community gardens, and uh, passive areas for relaxation and the enjoyment of this uh, restored natural habitat. Adjacent to the park, our plan imagines the transformation of the Mission Road corridor into a vibrant, mixed-use neighborhood to animate the site 24-7, to better link Lincoln Heights and Boyle Heights to downtown, and to propose a new model for the densification of this city in the vertical integration of a variety of uses from residential to educational, cultural, office, and light industrial. All of this serving, we hope, a diverse population in buildings marrying architecture and landscape and incorporating 
significant sustainable features uh, along a pedestrian-friendly boulevard and a new branch of the Metro Gold Line. To the north, uh, we are proposing to expand uh, the arts district that was initiated by the brewery by creating a campus of live work, artist studios, and exhibition spaces. And we're also exploring a new type of residential tower uh, right on the riverbank, which uh, would have the river as its front yard. And finally, uh, we've incorporated in our plan uh, the potential for a covered rail yard, uh, which would serve the, uh, the uses of the metro and uh, potentially high-speed rail. So in summary, our plan aims to integrate fundamental aspects of our city, which are often separated, uh, a protected yet, yet accessible natural habitat, uh, public open space, which is lacking and needs to be preserved as the city uh, grows more dense, transportation and other infrastructure, maintaining the essential rail corridors, expanding the metro, and also fostering a pedestrian-friendly uh, community. And buildings, of course, buildings to create a sustainable workplace, uh, provide a wide range of uh, living opportunities, and attract a diverse population. We believe that this plan would not only provide extraordinary amenities for the residents and the neighbors, but could also become a regional destination, and we think a powerful demonstration of the future sustainable development of Los Angeles within walking distance of Union Station and, and high-speed rail, and um, for Lewis McAdams, the realization of a revitalized Los Angeles River as a bond between communities, east and west, as opposed to a separating void uh, in the heart of our city. Thank you very much, Mark. I'm, I'm going to try to encourage the interactive aspects of this conversation by uh, turning to each panelist. Uh, before I turn to the next panelist, though, I'm going to use my prerogative as the moderator to ask a question of the panelists who just spoke. Mark, you were talking about Mission, Mission Road and about the potential for a 24-7 uh, lifestyle on, on, on that street. Can you say something more about how... How could that vision of changing Mission Road be achieved, and how would it relate to the open space and, and, and the river, which are such an important part of the piggyback yard plan? Well, we think the, the site presents a unique opportunity to aggregate many different types of uses. I, I mentioned them earlier. Uh, in, in a very intricate way that would uh, create the type of di diversity and integration that I think we'll, we'll want to talk about tonight. To uh, preserve the, the proper balance between this, this type of development along Mission Road and the open space, we, we studied um, very carefully the relationship between the landscape and the buildings, and uh, I think propose uh, something that is denser than what we see typically in Los Angeles, in a Los Angeles neighborhood these days, so that we leave uh, open space available for a larger population but also invite the landscape, you know, working very closely with me on this project, to come across the road to the other side, to infiltrate the buildings, and uh, uh, let the buildings open up to this landscape and create as much um, of an interface, of an integration of the two as possible. Okay, thank you, Mark. Uh, our next speaker is one of, those, one of the most prominent landscape architects in the city, Mia Lehrer. Mia Lehrer is the founding principal of Mia Lehrer and Associates, 
Under her leadership, the firm has been a leader in creating award-winning designs and distinctive venues for a diverse range of public and private projects, from urban parks to gardens to private uh, gardens for private homes. Ms. Lehrer serves on the City of Los Angeles Mayor's Design Advisory Panel and on several boards, including the Landscape Architecture Foundation, the Latino Urban Forum, and the National Gardening Association. Mia Lehrer. This uh, was a wonderful experience because it was uh, not really a job, a project. It was a, it really a collaboration. When we got engaged, we didn't know how long we were going to be uh, engaged together playing like this every Friday morning. Um, it, it was about seven months, as it turns out. It was, a, you know, the, the site and the issues really drew us to it. You know, just the issues as, as Angelinos, most, that most of us are, the issues, you know, we don't always have the opportunity to address these issues in a holistic way and to collaborate across disciplines. Um, I'd like to point out that we also have some really incredibly valuable members of our team in the audience, Louis McAdams, Christy Lee, Jessica Varner, <laughs> Jessica Hall. Um, so there, you know, it was truly a labor of love in terms of uh, our firms and um, the people who volunteered within our offices um, to do this work. So my charge today is to talk a bit about the landscape and obviously uh, Mark is a real true convert. It's amazing to me uh, that uh, in working together, I think, uh, uh, in sharing the issues um, that that landscape architecture and this kind of project brings forward, uh, sort of this this incredible dance and in the about how much open space and how much development, and uh, how how do we create balance? How do we make you know we we made things up that we thought was going was going to create a really uh, unusually. Uh, new paradigm for Los Angeles as, a, as an integrated community. And in that way, uh, much like students, we were allowed ourselves to dream about the right solutions. So in the sense that landscape urbanism can really deal with issues of transportation, uh, issues of uh, sort of public um, and private open space, um, issues of uh, how 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 to integrate all these aspects and how to make make sure that these uh, mo uh, these projects, this particular project where we expected housing and jobs and cultural institutions to coexist, how do we build that and how do we make sure that that happens and how do we then also service the river? And how do we bring to life um, the LA River Revitalization Master Plan that the city adopted, that the Corps of Engineers is supportive of and continuing to do studies? And we understood that our charge was very valuable in the process and in, in, in making this sort of project of the LA River um, as, as a new kind of multi-objective armature that really can change the face of Los Angeles, not you know, clearly here we're connecting east and west and we're in the middle of downtown. But there are many, many communities where the river has really become a gash. It's the gash across the city that is on grade, as it turns out. 
you know, it's not that armature of freeways that hovers above us, but it happens to be a gash that goes sort of uh, below grade and that we can really harness and take advantage of. So um, as we saw it, you know, we were creating um, habitat. Uh, we were actually creating a, a, the, the river becoming much more uh, functional and becoming an educational uh, sort of destination, but also allowing for the, the water to sort of uh, slow down during big events and bringing some of the ideas that the master plan was putting forward to life. Um, to, to create a space that where it multifunctions not only in the buildings but in the park. The park, which be, is a floodplain, and it, in, in whether it's 25, 50, or 100 year, uh, there, there would be these areas where the water would have to sort of uh, be, you know, be accepted by this park, uh, but where you could, norm, uh, under normal circumstances, and 99% of the time, play soccer or play frisbee. Um, and where it would be a, a com not just for the community surrounding the park, imme immediately surrounding the park, but as a regional destination. Uh, and uh, we created a small soccer stadium in, uh, as a result of conversations that we had with some of the community leadership. Um, and we understood that uh, there were a lot of other opportunities, like daylighting a stream, uh, like creating small moments and small places for people who live there, but larger places where you could have festival events and other um, deal with other issues. Where there, there are other technical challenges uh, related to sort of the groundwater table and the flooding uh, challenges, and that is how do we deal with uh, many levels of uh, potential uh, development on the site. And we know that there are many um, agencies, including the MTA, that also has, uh, you know, has some thoughts on how the site could be used. And um, we think that there's an opportunity here to actually deal with uh, rail and rail, uh, the needs for rail um, and maintenance uh, yards, uh, deal with uh, the, the level where parking would occur, uh, deal with the level with housing, commercial, and then also, uh, and on and on. So if they could do it in New York and if they can do it in Chicago, we also could have a park that is many other things. Um, and I will say in case any of you are doing numbers about 125 and 130 acres, um, we kind of took liberties and we went across the way on Mission Road and we went, you know, we've taken liberties. So we, we were really touching more like 165 or 170 acres. I think that sort of, uh, I think that the time has come in Los Angeles for us to start thinking big um, and to all, for us to try to solve problems uh, at many levels, not to have single function solutions, but to have multi-benefit solutions that actually address all the issues in Los Angeles related to equity, both in terms of housing and access to open space, and also quality of life issues, but also environmental issues that affect all of us um, in terms of air and water quality and food. Thanks, Mia. You mentioned Chicago, you mentioned New York. When I think of some of the great public, the great new public spaces in the United States, I think of Millennium Park in Chicago, I think of the High Line in New York. What lessons are there for Los Angeles from the success of those projects? How come projects can happen like that in Chicago and New York and they don't happen here in LA? 
Uh, okay, at the risk of, <laughs> I think it, it there, there clearly are, you know, the clearly the design community is um, very uh, interested in big ideas in Los Angeles. And I'm not just talking about us here on the dais, but I, I you know, it, I think that we're known across the world, you know, LA is, you, doesn't just produce movies, it, it produces great design. I think it's about vision, and I think it's visionary leadership. Um, somehow, uh, we suffer from the balkanization um, of the way our, you know, our city works in terms of, uh, you know, 15 districts, and that at some point we have to start thinking of of the whole. And uh, in, I think in terms of basically uh, budgets allocated for these public improvements, perhaps one of the things we suffer from the most is that front yard, backyard mentality um, that we really have to transgress uh, if we're gonna start thinking about front yards and the common good. And you know, the young generation takes advantage of, of the, the public realm, you know, you look at critical mass or you look at, you know, the way the young generation is take, uh, taking the streets on and riding bicycles and having festivals and events. They don't need necessarily things to be fancy, uh, but at some point we do have to create these spaces in the city. And I think it's gonna take, again, that sort of commitment uh, both in terms of funding and instead of the political will uh, to make these things happen. Okay, thank you, Mia. Our next panelist is Michael Maltzen. Uh, Michael is design principal of Michael Maltzen Architecture. His practice has been commissioned to design a wide range of projects, including the Skid Row Housing Trust's new Carver Apartments, the NASA Jet Proportion Laboratory Administration Building, and the Hammer Museum's Billy Wilder Theater and Cafe. Uh, Mr. Maltzen has received five Progressive Architecture Awards, 19 citations from the American Institute of Architects, and he was a finalist for the Smithsonian Cooper Hewitt Museum's National Design Award. Michael Maltzen. I, I think that Mark, uh, I'm gonna talk a little bit about the architecture uh, of the project. And I think Mark certainly outlined uh, very beautifully what many of the concerns and what many of the uh, responsibilities of the architecture were, especially as it related to this is not only a, a series of single buildings, but really uh, an architecture that uh, was tasked with uh, representing a, a very complex whole that, that is the potential on this, this site and in this part of the city. And uh, those uh, concerns and, and, and the attempt, uh, I think, uh, on the, um, uh, the team, with the team as a whole, uh, to provide an, uh, a new district, an emerging district in the city that truly fosters a new type of, of, of connectivity and integration um, and, and uh, positive complexity that comes from uh, density, which is very much emerging in Los Angeles, uh, is something that architecture uh, I think is both very capable of taking on, but isn't always necessarily asked to do. And I think here, what we were the most interested in was to 
to see if the architecture um, could move from uh, one of its roles uh, as a single or more iconic structure in the city uh, to a building type or a series of building types that were more thresholds between this new park, this new site, this new district, the new precinct, and, and the community all around it. Um, whether uh, to Lincoln Heights, USC, the potential for the Green Tech Corridor, obviously the river, uh, across to the downtown district, it's very close to Chinatown and, and the, uh, uh, the Cornfields Park. Um, it, it's a site which has a kind of opportunity for producing uh, a more integrated whole than almost any other site that I know of in the city. And the architecture acting as, as a threshold between those different um, uh, adjacencies, those different precincts, uh, and the, the landscape uh, uh, of, of the park, of the emerging park and the river, meant that we, we had to strive for creating a new type, uh, a, new type uh, a, new, a new model, a new paradigm, um, of, of a, a kind of architecture that doesn't really exist in the city, one that, that takes the idea of, of, real, um, uh, of a real multi-purpose building uh, to heart, one that is housing but is also manufacturing, uh, is also commercial, um, potential healthcare, uh, art space, both for the making of art and creative uh, exploits uh, and enterprises as well as, as uh, uh, places uh, to show that art. And in doing that, and also trying to make the architecture uh, find ways of creating bridges and, and thresholds across things like uh, the five freeway, um, across the river to the other side of, of the river, across uh, uh, Mission, uh, Mission Road, which is almost like a small highway in and of itself. It, it tries to draw in all of those infrastructural elements into the architecture in a way that we start to move beyond the normal mo monocultures of, of often what we make, those distinct um, and quite separate structures that mark our city, and to try to provide a, a new model uh, both through the architecture and the way that it connects to those communities and those infrastructures uh, for uh, a physical multiculture, uh, which I think if we're going to imagine the way that Los Angeles can uh, continue to emerge as a progressive city, uh, I think it needs to move from an idea of a monoculture to, to a multiculture. Uh, Michael, let me follow up and ask you to try to define more precisely what do you mean by this word threshold you're using. At first, I was thinking you meant bigger windows or bigger doors or bigger skylights. Uh, but, but I think that what you're referring to is a architecture is a threshold between multi-purpose building and public space. I think, yeah, so I'm no. wondering, are, are you getting at some kind of a different mixture of uses than is typical in Los I, Angeles? I, it, is, it is very much a different mixture of uses uh, in the sense that, I wouldn't say it's a different mixture of uses, I would say that it's the concentration of, of uses. Um, in, uh, in this case, in, in singular buildings, that uh, it's not just an apartment building and maybe with some retail on the ground floor, uh, but that that retail and potentially manufacturing uses and workspaces 
permeate through these buildings um, in in a in a real mix, uh, 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 and that's that's something we're trying to see if, if it even works because it seems that that one way of creating a real community is a community in the city where you don't live in one place and have to drive to another place to work or to drive to another place um, to do your shopping or to drive to another place for recreation. Uh, that possibly, especially in a development of this scale, that those things not only all exist on the site, but maybe there's a new type of architecture where they all exist in, in, in a singular building. And in doing that, it also, uh, I think, the architecture can create real conduits, um, activity conduits, as well as physical conduits, from one side of the site into this, this park, uh, so that you could move from Mission Road into the park on the other side. I think very often, the, the traditional form of a building is one in which there is a front yard and a backyard, and they're completely separate. Here, in a way, it's front yards on both sides, and the architecture has to somehow find a, a useful way, a real way of negotiating between those, those two worlds, and to do that in a way that is inclusive and um, exciting. Thank you, Michael. Uh, our next speaker is James Stafford. Uh, Jim Stafford is an associate principal at Perkins & Will, which just received a National Building Museum Honor Award for Civic Innovation. He's been practicing architecture in Southern California for more than 40 years, and his recent design work includes large-scale projects in India, Korea, China, Saudi Arabia, and hopefully in Los Angeles as well. Before joining Perkins & Will, Jim helped establish several award-winning design firms, and he was one of the founding members of the Southern California Institute of Architecture. Jim. Thank you. Well, you've heard about the river, and you've heard about everything on the east side of the river. Uh, but a big part of what's happening, and it's very, very imminent right now, and, uh, and it's really going to make a huge impact in this whole area is the rapid transit, which is, you know, about to become a reality. And that combined with the Union Station, that huge hub, which will become uh, a sort of depot for millions of people a year, is going to have potential impact on the piggyback yards and all of that area around it. Now, if anybody's familiar with the area just east or just west, excuse me, of the river. You probably aren't because you can't have, you don't have access to it, you don't have visibility to it, but essentially it's maintenance yards, prisons, rail yards, and no connectivity to anything you'd want to go to. That has to change for the river to become a really viable element in the city of LA. And that area that's between Union Station and the river has this incredible potential. It's about, just the length is not really exceptional, about 1,200 yards from the station to the, to the river. And our, you know, we did a study, we did several studies which had to do with the uh, placement of the, um, of the rapid transit and its physical impact in relationship to the Union Station and what would happen, what potentially could happen between the placement of the uh, rapid transit station and the river. There's a lot of space there. That space we envisioned as sort of a high-density, multi-use, uh, very, very heavily impacted area in terms of providing people who could take advantage of the river, take advantage of the, uh, the piggyback yard. 
if you can imagine, I mean, it's um, potential. Thinking about the river as a natural form, which you know is sort of impossible now when you uh, when you look at it, and you probably haven't looked at it, right? Because you can't can't see it. I mean, I I was um, really impressed by Lewis McAdams' definition of the river as being a place that you want to swim in, you want to boat in, and you want to catch fish in. So Lewis promises that we're going to have steelhead trout in that river as soon as it's available to us, which would be really amazing, wouldn't it? I mean, can you just imagine what L.A. would be? And, it, you know, if you look at urban environments and, and what happens um, to people and to the quality of, of life, and, and we, you, you asked about Millennium Park and, and what happens there, and I wanted to answer Mia's question because I really have a feeling that it has to do with who's living there and how many people are living there and how much impact they're willing to uh, exert on the powers that be. Because if there's nobody there and nobody cares, it's not, not going to happen, right? One of the great things that we're seeing in L.A. now, and we've seen this, this economic issue, obviously, that's caused, causing problems, but we work in L.A. We've we worked there in our office for maybe seven, five years, seven years. And the transformation that's happening in L.A. is really pretty amazing. And it has to do with who's living there and who's buying property there, and who stays there, and what's happening there. And that is what makes the difference between an, a really vital urban environment and what we have now. And uh, so we envision the area that's uh, the west side as being potentially that kind of area where, where people are, they want to stay, and they are having a great time, and they're looking at beautiful things, and they have access to beautiful places. And um, that's an important thing, I think. Uh, Jim, in other cities, actually in this city, when new transportation infrastructure gets built, like new freeways or, or railroad lines, they tend to divide neighborhoods, not unify neighborhoods. Can you say something more about the advent of high-speed rail, and how can the advent of high-speed rail be a factor unifying or integrating the city, not dividing the city? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the... Uh, you know, I've heard the depot or the, you know, the high-speed rail station in L.A. described as a pass-through, as a transfer station. And I think that has to do with the sort of physical environment that it does go through and it's going someplace else. Part of what has to happen, I think it has to become a destination, that people have to want to get off there and be there and stay there. And that potential, let's say, that great environment that people want to stay in and are going to as opposed to just going through is the, the huge difference, I think. Now, physically, that, you know, that rail, that high-speed station is a divider. I mean, it's a huge element. But there are lots of ways to get under it, go over it. It's what's happening around it and in close proximity to it, in walking distance to it, bicycle riding, all of that stuff that makes it less of a divider and more of a connective piece. Thank you. 
Uh, if I understand the schedule, I think we have about seven and a half minutes left in the program. So uh, uh, rather than continue the dialogue among the panelists, I'll now open up the questions to the audience to see who has a question about uh, either the piggyback yards specifically or the broader issues about how Los Angeles changes. I'm asking you about a project that was developed about 20 years ago in the East River in Manhattan in the 60s on an island about the same size that was vacant and they built an integrated village there connecting it to Manhattan by an aerial tram. Did you by chance consider that in your project? You know, we had uh, some very interesting meetings at the beginning of the project and they had to do with people who were very familiar with the hydrology of the river and its impact on everything downstream. And so it was very quickly decided, it was amazing that we had that meeting and everybody just sort of said, this is the answer, that open space and that the retention of water was an exceptional issue in this, in this area. And the other thing about this site, I mean, I just read this, well, I said this, Michael, it's sort of incredible. So LA has, we're fifth in the United States in terms of the amount of parkland that the city has. But guess what? It's all up there in the Santa Monica Mountains or it's all someplace else and you can't get to it. This site would double the amount of urban park in downtown LA, uh, which is amazing. I mean, just incredible that, that we're that impoverished. And um, that's gotta change too. I think that question about Roosevelt Island um, is, uh, is interesting in that I think it really points to a distinction between this site and something like Roosevelt Island. The challenge in, with, with that project is that it's an island. It's completely isolated. And the tram, the aerial tramway, while exciting um, and iconic, uh, is, is really just a, um, a, a symbolic connection between the vitality of the city around it. And I think one of the challenges over the last many years since that project was, was uh, developed and, and mostly completed has been the sense of, of isolation in that community. It's integrated within itself, but it's not necessarily integrated to the, to the rest of um, the city. And the, if, if there is one uh, thing that this project as a whole, um, both the East and the West Side, have, have, have really striven to, to achieve is to uh, stop the sense that this is an isolated island in the city and to work against what often happens in the city, which is the precinct, precinctation, precinctization, the siloization of, of, of communities into separate precincts, and to try to propose a, a, a much more um, a progressive idea about, a, about a, a district in the city that isn't a standalone, but is very much connected to, uh, to everything around it, um, so that the, uh, the island quality uh, doesn't exist. It goes away. Hi, my name is Laura Weber, and I'm a fourth grade teacher in East Los Angeles. Um, imagining, imagining a more integrated Los Angeles for me conjured up images of cultural integration and uh, population integration. And um, what I heard tonight was a lot about architecture, which perhaps I should have known. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering um, how we can have integration 
without displacement, without gentrification. I'm wondering what's meant by having um, certain people live in these places and having a wonderful time. Certainly in our communities, in the Legion Park, in MacArthur Park, there's no shortage of people coming out to enjoy the parks. I wonder if when we attempt to integrate people from the west side, people from other communities, if the attempt to do so doesn't usually result in a sort of gentrification and a displacement of the people who are already living there. Uh, there are certainly, if nothing else, um, through the uh, process of uh, community, you know, working with the community and and the leadership, uh, one can develop a, a strategy and there's some obviously legal ramification, legal sort of tools to actually make sure that there is a balance of uh, in a, in a, an opportunity for everyone to live. I mean, the idea is that, that there would be enough housing and enough uh, Places for live, you know, for people to work, and that it would actually be actually a new kind of place, a place where people of very different kind of income levels would find, um, you know, it in want to live there, and for for a variety of reasons, access to transportation, access to jobs, access to park and open space. It's kind of, and you know, it's it's a new. You know, and and are and actually providing a, a, a significant amount of housing, because we do understand that East LA, as a result of some of the you know a lot of the research and conversations we've had, is in dire need of uh, more, more housing um, opportunities. But uh, you know, it it's definitely uh, it, it was a lot for us about people and neighborhoods and uh, really reaching out and figuring out how do you how do you stitch all these these you know uh, pieces together? How do you make a, a village within a village? And how do you you know basically encourage people to stay in the city and don't not to move out? And you know, and move away uh, to to the suburbs or sub suburbs, and um, have to drive two or three hours to get to the city. And and if I can add to that, I'm sorry it didn't come across in the overview, but this uh, diversity of population that uh, you mentioned is is really a fundamental aspect of our entire enterprise. Um, we see it, as I think you do, as uh, uh, an essential part of what we're trying to describe tonight, which is this urban integration. I think it starts with the blending and the social interaction of the diverse population that we have in the city, but it's been stretched out uh, over many, many different districts that are often isolated. Uh, we see it also in um, universal access to not only the site and its amenities, but uh, this uh, uh, nature that we're trying to bring back and, and protect at the heart of the city. So I think those two uh, themes are, for me, at, at the heart of, of this uh, theme of integration. It's diversity, it's um, access, it's mobility, and it's uh, communication at the end of the day behind, between these various parts. Uh, hi, my name's Jeff Sandin. Uh, I was an equipment supplier on the Metro Green Line, and I, I just bring this up as a cynical point, 
but how do you as planners entrust your visions to moving people uh, when 25 years down the line we still don't move people to things like airports, uh, two of the most important places. Uh, and how do you relegate that to the politics and the economic structure that you're going to be facing? You know, it's like we're so involved in the tragedies we hear about, you know, the katinas and the, and the big things that we read, but, but we're looking at tragedy every day in, in terms of what the river is or that transportation problem. I mean, these things are, uh, we, we live with, but I think there's a tremendous awareness too um, that we have to really start dealing with those things. The other thing that I saw in this whole event, which was a great event, and Mia's explained how, uh, how the sort of collaboration was incredible, and the collaboration from the bureaucratic side, from the young people working in the city, very, very bright and very, very motivated. Um, they're, they're very aware of these things. And I think that um, there's, a there's a force um, coming forth from that group of people that will make an impact, I think. Well, and, and I think we're, we, you know, we have to remember that this is a, you know, sort of an, a vision, you know, vision, uh, eff, visioning effort that was initiated uh, by, you know, a, a very active nonprofit, sort of, it's sort of a little bit like guerrilla planning, so to speak. Um, and uh, so, you know, it's a way of sharing uh, with some of the leadership what, you know, what some of us think might be the possibilities here. But from here to reality, um, to, you know, Union Pacific wanting to sell the property and many, many of these, you know, sort of ideas uh, sort of becoming a reality are, you know, there are challenges, uh, but, you know, we like to think of the optimistic side um, because there, it has been received in a very, uh, with, with open arms by many um, who are, you know, in, in, uh, in positions of, of power. I, I, I want to reinforce the guerrilla planning idea <laughs> about that because um, this is not a project that, uh, uh, in a sense, a large development client came to us and said, you design team, we'd like you to work on this project. Um, this, this was um, and has been something that uh, started as, as uh, a very specific idea that there is a rail yard in the middle of the city, one of the most consequential sites um, in the city, that uh, probably shouldn't remain solely a rail yard given the future of the city. And um, the steps that have been taken all along have been uh, have been iterative steps, sequential steps to try to imagine what the issues are, what the challenges are on this site, starting with uh, what actually exists on the site now and and um, what could uh, make sense on, on the site. So, I, I, I think uh, Mia is absolutely right. This is very early stage of the project, real um, and I think heavily vetted. Um, but many of those questions about how you how you continue to develop this project is going to continue to take not just the design team, but um, but a, a wide constituency of of people on many sides of the table. Um, definitely, and, and that's what the actually the website 
was about. When we kind of had long conversations about how to unveil the project um, and how do we share it? I mean, we call for a presentation at the Central Library. We have this idea. Do people want to come here? We realized, you know, that that this was something that, you know, it was a lot, you know, it's a it's a lot, a conversation we're bringing to light, and that it needed to live on on a website to engage the community in the dialogue about place and placemaking and the future of our city, and getting people excited about the possibilities. And and if we assume that a project like this one would would make Los Angeles more integrated would play a small role in doing that, then we can uh, look at, at this experience, which was sort of a laboratory of how uh, you can make this happen, because it was conceptual, so people were not really forced to uh, agree or disagree, but they could be more candid about uh, what it would take to go to the next level. It can inform us about you know, what it would require to do something that ambitious. And I think the first thing that we would say, based on our experience, that it requires an integrated design process. We were working landscape architects, architects, uh, uh, other consultants and hydrological engineers. We were working together as a team. And uh, going back to the original question, uh, getting feedback from very different many different experts about many different topics. And so I think that that it would be essential to realize something like that. And then quickly we get asked, you know, how much does it cost? And we don't know yet, but I think we know that the funding wouldn't come from a single source, that it would have to become a partnership between the public and the private sectors. And that's why we felt it was important to have a component of this project that the pri private sector could grab onto and not turn it into uh, just profit and, and, and bastardize the idea, but use uh, uh, the advantages of, of the master plan and, and enhance it. Uh, and I think we, we found out uh, um, in, in a very deep way that it would take a very coordinated uh, public process because the Los Angeles River in particular uh, is not only uh, uh, the subject of many different city agencies, the county is involved, the federal government is involved through the Army Corps of Engineers. And each of these groups that we spoke to, that, that, that we consulted, were all very enthusiastic about the project, understood the, the global um, uh, uh, potential of it. Uh, but they're working within very strict requirements, goals that they're trying to achieve. And to find this level of coordination between these various agencies so that they can complement each other instead of working against each other, I think would have to be a, a very important aspect of realizing a project like this. And I think finally, and perhaps it's the most challenging and most important thing to accomplish, is to be able to take this level of complexity and to explain it with very clear objectives so that it can be embraced by the population as a whole and they can support the project and that you can find tangible results at the end of the project that would attract many different constituencies uh, going back to the point about diversity so that uh, the project can be successful because uh, we live uh, in a very messy yet very democratic city which is driven by uh, you know, market realities, and, and we cannot simply impose that all these people go live on this site in harmony, looking at beautiful things. We have to uh, make it really appealing to them on various levels uh, to be part of this, um, this big initiative. 
Orrin Harris, Cal Poly Puna student. Question to the uh, general board, sort of as a follow-up to the elementary school teacher next to me. You're saying that you're trying to make this area popular to all sorts of people so that it wouldn't become a gentrified area. But given the rules of supply and demand, that if you want a more wealthy clientele to come in there, are you not afraid that by them coming in there that they'll buy everything else up? And yes, you can put in place laws like rent control, which theoretically will help this, but if you have enough rich clientele, they'll be willing to pay off the people who are previously living there. How will this not become another area like Echo Park, where yes, 20 years ago, I would be afraid to walk there at night, but the houses, housing prices have gone up in such a way that it's no longer affordable to the people who were the original inhabitants of that area. I, I think it can uh, come in part uh, th uh, out of this public-private partnership I was mentioning because uh, we, we assume a scenario where um, the land would be sold to the, to the public and to the government and, and then parts of it could be sold off to private developers, the leverage that uh, the, the, the public sector would have uh, on this, the sale of this land would probably allow uh, for very specific uh, rules to be put in place as to the various levels of uh, housing that the development would provide. But that's, that's uh, 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 artificial and, and, and necessary. Uh, but it may not be as powerful as what the project can do in terms of appealing to various clientels and not only to one would be uh, uh, so enamored that they'd want to buy up the whole place. Um, there, there, there are many you know, enlightened developers who are building interesting mixed income housing projects. Um, you know, I'm involved in, in a project right now where you basically have uh, three uh, sort of housing you know three they're they're integrated as buildings and uh, you have you know sort of mixed mixed incomes uh, in 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 the in the project so I think that uh, everybody sees value in um, depending on how deals are struck with cities and like Mark said in terms of these private public partnerships there is a level of sophistication that can be put in place where um, some of the larger developers would be interested in a project like That's, this. You know, I, I think there are a number of mechanisms that you can employ, some of those that Mark and me have just talked about. Um, and I think uh, uh, those are very useful tools. What's most interesting to me about your question is, um, the uh, that implicit in it, it, it implied in it is a kind, is is a very real fear for this city that uh, the city uh, is densifying the city is continuing to grow and look inward as opposed to just outward um, for its expansion and it's going to put those kinds of pressures on on all sorts of communities uh, communities that are established and communities that. Um, don't necessarily uh, exist there. And you can look at it absolutely um, realistically um, and be nervous about that, anxious about that, and scared about that. But it's also an indication of um, a very positive thing which is happening in the city, and that is that density um, and the reemergence of the urban core or urban cores in the city um, are becoming a very 
real part of the conversation. And the frictions in that and how we deal with the frictions in that in that debate, I think, have more to do with the city that this becomes than almost, uh, almost anything else. To me, the, the most uh, useful thing that's going on in this project is that uh, as opposed to the project being given to one specific group or one specific developer to develop, it's a long way from that, that there is, uh, as Mark mentioned, a real planning process, a real integrated planning process that's taking place where these kinds of questions can hopefully produce a vision, a plan, uh, a, uh, a roadmap to one future that uh, does produce greater diversity, greater complexity, um, uh, a real range of different uses uh, for many different communities. Um, I think if you look at the plan, one of the things that, that this group is, has tried very hard to produce is, is a plan that uh, isn't just one thing everywhere, uh, but is trying to understand the diversity that already exists on the site and to take that as the starting point, that that's the actual context. It doesn't mean that we're going to achieve uh, a kind of nirvana out of that, um, but this kind of process I think is necessary because it goes directly at that very real anxiety that you're pointing up. And it's going to continue to demand these conversations to be at the forefront of, of how those developments navigate through uh, eventually getting done. And as a question. member of the, of the City Planning Commission, I would say there is no substitute for the city having a strong inclusionary housing requirement. In other words, if you're a developer and you want to build market rate units, a certain percentage of the units need to be affordable. Otherwise, I think there is no really enforceable way to ensure that the supply of affordable units matches the demand. That's the difference between, as your suggestion, Echo Park, right, which is essentially single-family houses all over the place, and as people want that land and are willing to pay more for it, the whole neighborhood changes. This, in the fact that it is new and it is planned development, those kinds of issues can be dealt with right up front and as, as part of the plan. So there's a lot more chance of something like, you know, your intentions happening here than in a place that is like Echo Park or Silver Lake or wherever you want to you know, talk about. Hi, my name is Yao Long, and I am um, interested in your community engagement process. Um, I'm curious about whether it was more top-down or bottoms-up in your approach. Um, you had spoken about having um, federal agencies or you know, organizations being part of this conversation. I was wondering, um, who was invited in that conversation? And how many times did you have that conversation? What's the duration of this process? And is it, um, how has that informed your plans? And will it continue to do so? Like we said, we met for about seven months. Um, and it was an iterative process. Uh, and uh, in terms of uh, representatives from the community, um, you know, I mean, we we didn't have uh, community meetings with, you know, 500 people and doing community workshops. We were eliciting comments. So I would say that there were probably um, uh, uh, several, you know, at least a, a dozen 
meetings where community representatives, uh, whether it's from uh, sports groups, church groups, um, uh, environmental groups, uh, would were invited to engage in the dialogue um, about the issues, and um, you know that that in that it definitely influenced what we you know what we ended up uh, sort of producing. Um, we you know what kind of park space? Uh, what and what you know do? There was a point at which we were actually considering. Um, a large destination soccer stadium because we thought it would be iconic and we assumed that the community would be very interested and you know in the conversations we had about that issue was no you know uh, we don't want a big stadium we want you know 5,000 people to come um, so that our youth our community can use this you know this space so um, there yeah, and to add to that, I'm sure we probably, at the end of the day, left out some people out of the conversation, and, and perhaps we, we can continue this conversation, and we want to expand the conversation to the public at large. It was a very organic process. Um, I got involved when Michael invited me to go to a meeting, and I thought that uh, I was going to hear about a project, and I realized that it was only the second meeting that the group had had. The project did not exist. Um, it, uh, at the initiative of Lewis, the group uh, came together, and the only uh, um, uh, goal uh, originally was let's imagine something for this site and, uh, and, and communicate it and see where it could go. So it was very organic. We would meet with people and find out they knew more about the site than, than we did, obviously, and they would inform us, and they would point us in another direction. We would meet with another group, and, uh, and ultimately we did meet with the owner of the site. And, uh, and while personally at the outset I imagined that um, the Army Corps of Engineers would be very nervous about people messing with their river, uh, we found out that they were incredibly supportive because part of their mandate uh, at the moment is not only to uh, protect these communities uh, along the river from floods, but also to uh, uh, restore rivers all over the country. And, and they found in, in our concept, uh, I think, a, an incredible opportunity to do that in the center of a metropolis. Uh, usually they deal with much more uh, rural uh, uh, situations. So um, uh, to go back to your topic of communication, um, it's, we hope that uh, this, this process is going to continue to involve more and more people. That's why we put a website together to be very transparent about uh, our, our ideas and how we came uh, to them and to uh, start to accrue uh, uh, the information and the, and the vision of uh, coming from a larger group. Thank you, thank you. Michael, you know that we are, we've been in the Planning Commission now for almost six years, and one of the issues that comes almost at every Planning Commission is the issue of what kind of a code, what kind of a planning ordinances do we have that, is, that are created in the city of Los Angeles. One of those is that it's, most of it, it's tailored to the automobile. So the fact that you mentioned here tonight, because I did participate in your outreach, I did provide input to you, the fact that transit, transit needs to be 
a very important element in facilitating what you have envisioned here. Because with the uh, uh, fact that we're going to be building a lot more transit in Los Angeles, we, we measure our, you're going to see a city, a fifth city, a sixth city on top of all the mm -hmm. cities that have been created, that it's going to be functioning and very linked with that transit. That's going to create the common ground. That's going to create and facilitate envelopes for more affordability, accessibility, etc. So if you don't integrate that, and I'm assuming that the transit that you mentioned here, or the transportation, it's underneath that park. Yes. Just like Millennium Park, correct? Mm -hmm. Okay, also, don't confuse high-speed well with transit. It's an element up here, but transit is what brings to high-speed rail. Mm -hmm. High-speed rail is more sort of like an, like an airplane. San Diego coming to LA or... Sir, do you have a question? So my question is, <laughs> my question is, my question is, how do you, what's, what was the envisioning in terms of, or the thinking in terms of implementation, and what do you need to ask the leaders in order for this idea to have legs and start walking, so to speak? Were you thinking about that? Were you... Do you suggest that that's the next phase, or how do you implement this? How do you move into it? Yeah. So, so Panel, I, what's the next step? The next step? Oh, the next hey, step. Uh, I would ask, uh, what's, what's Diego's title? Uh, Commissioner Diego Cardoso of the City no, Planning Commission. No, but at the MTA. At the MTA, at the MTA he is... Uh, executive officer. Uh, so I would <laughs> ask the executive officer at the planning department, Diego Cardoso, uh, to start talking to us about um, how to start integrating some of the transit-oriented um, uh, aspects of the project and uh, to enlighten us about the funding uh, opportunities that exist so that you know, he can get that layer of the, you know, of the sandwich done so we can start working on uh, sort of so some of the sort of agencies that deal with uh, environmental and water quality issues, uh, and that we then um, start, and, and we have been talking to the mayor's office and planning and the CRA. It's also in the, in the Atalante planning dist, uh, uh, redevelopment area, so talking about redevelopment opportunities, the development opportunities there, but um, I mean, I don't know, some of you, for us, you know, we're making, you know, it's like we're our own clients. Right. So uh, actually maybe we have to, uh, we have to declare a, a, um, a chief. Uh, and uh, after Diego tells us where the money is going to come for transit <laughs> and to buy the land, uh, then, uh, then the next steps uh, are. No, it's very opportune that you're here tonight. Because yes, we're going to start a collection <laughs> basket on ourselves. I, I think that that's. I think that that's right. That uh, uh, much of that seven months, at every turn, um, we discovered more and more potential uh, to to the project and to the site. And I think you're absolutely right. Transit is not just an issue, certainly for this. Um, this site. It's a citywide reality. Uh, it is probably one. It's probably the, one of the largest drivers for the way that the city is is uh, is going to is going to emerge. It has been um, a, uh, I think, intense and very uh, at times political uh, battle in the city in terms of where transit was and what it was going to be. Um, 
we are, as the project goes forward, going to need much more involvement with a number of the different agencies and the different groups, especially like the MTA. I think the goal is, again, in this project, uh, one of, of, of if, again, real integration. Um, uh, that's going to be a major part of it, right? Up until this point, we've been mostly trying to, to navigate what is on the site and what is potentially on the site. Um, that's a conversation we're going to need to have. And, and of course, we have to take into consideration um, elected officials, uh, Ms. Molina and um, Lucille Royval Arlard, at, uh, so both at this, but county and at the federal level, we're going to need support for appropriations in the future um, for a project of this complexity. Uh, that involves transit, that involves river, and, and so much infrastructure to actually, you know, come to fruition. Mm -hmm. For me, the, the next step uh, has to involve the public and has to involve you. Um, this is just one potential vision of what we can do with the site, but if you agree, if the public agrees that it's, it's an amazing opportunity, we can't pass it up, we have to start thinking about it now and not wait, uh, you know, another 20 years uh, until the, uh, the, all the trains and trucks have, have gone, if that's the scenario. Uh, we, if, if you believe in that, then um, hopefully you can find a way to express that and put pressure on, on the elected officials and other um, constituencies um, to move this project forward. Mm -hmm. So audience, stay tuned for next week's exciting episode of the Piggyback yes. Yard. And please join with me in thanking Mia Lehrer, Mark Sellett, Michael Maltzen, and James Stafford. <laughs>